we need to support each other, you know, in, in hard times. More testing options, more cases of COVID-19. You have COVID-19 symptoms, you can walk up to the site to receive a test. Planning to reopen, but no date in sight. Any future unwinding and rules will be done with zero tolerance. More victims among the most vulnerable. Field hospitals, mobile morgues, food lines. People were coming up from the Keys and they loaded up their vehicles and went and shared it with their neighbors. Florida's struggling unemployment system. Now a change at the top. And we're expecting the car to drive 10 times as fast as it was built for. Relief money still slow to come. We're all waiting very patiently, but it's still a struggle every day. Patients look for answers before it's too late. You know, as much as we don't know what's to come, it is the same hope that something will come. As South Florida tries to stop the spread. Good morning. Glad you could join us. I'm Michael Putney. I'm Glenna Milberg. This weekend, there is another option for COVID-19 testing. Walk-up sites are up and running right now in Broward County. And our Ian Margul is at one of those test sites in Pompano Beach, where lines formed early today. Ian, good morning. How are things going up there? Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Glenna. Things going really well. It opened at 9 o'clock this morning here at Mitchell Moore Park, and I'll show you there are still a few people here. We've seen hundreds of people coming in and obviously for these areas where it is slightly more low income people don't always have access to transportation so drive up sites are not possible walk up sites like this one and the other one in Broward which is down in the Fort Lauderdale area are a major benefit they lined up early masks and gloves on hoping to get tested for COVID-19 these people at Mitchellmore Park in Pompano Beach Sunday morning showed up at one of the two walk-up testing sites in Broward County. The other at the Urban League down in Fort Lauderdale is closed on Sundays and Mondays. You have COVID-19 symptoms, you can walk up to the site to receive a test or you can call ahead to set up an appointment to be tested. On Friday, the governor held a press conference talking about the two new sites. Up until now, all testing was done in a drive through fashion, but for some South Floridians, that's just not possible. Maybe it's just too far away from where you live. Maybe you don't have reliable ground transportation. Both sites are near county bus stops and will start by testing a couple hundred people a day. For either, you can just walk up and get a test, or you can make an appointment by calling 954-412-7300. So that site in Fort Lauderdale is closed on Sundays and Mondays. This site here in Pompano Beach is open every day except for Thursdays. Michael, Glenna. Ian, thanks so much. Ten of those state's testing sites are being run with military precision by members of the Florida National Guard. And the man in charge of the Florida National Guard is Adjutant General James Eifert. He is joining us now by Skype from Tallahassee. He is the senior military advisor to the governor. Good morning, General. Good to see you. Good morning. Same to you. Thank you. And we should mention that at one point during your distinguished career, we know you were flying fighter jets at Homestead Air Force Base, so you know South Florida. We appreciate that. Uh, General, you have more than 2,300 National Florida National Guardsmen, men, women, who are out there in the field doing this extraordinary work. Tell us about them. Who are they? Well, they're your neighbors. Uh, they do pretty much every walk of life. Uh, the uh, citizens, soldiers, and airmen that are part of the Florida National Guard are literally in every community in, in the state of Florida. Unlike the active duty, which are um, coalesced on large bases, somewhat like at Homestead or Patrick or McDill throughout the state, 
Um, our guardsmen uh, are in literally every county. We have uh, armories in uh, 55 locations throughout the state, and that's where they come in on their weekends to drill. We also have uh, over 500 of our Florida guardsmen deployed um, all over the world to the Middle East, to Europe. Um, so it's a busy organization and uh, very proud of our Florida Guardsmen that are participating not only abroad, but now most recently in this role to uh, support the citizens through this pandemic. General Eifert, there is so much focus on the testing because that really, by all accounts, is what is important in getting the real picture of where COVID-19 infection is and where it's spreading. And we know that there was in Florida, the governor has really ramped up the numbers of tests in each site, brought down the standards by which people can have to meet to go get that standards by age. Uh, anyone with a symptom now pretty much can find a place. And, and the guardsmen and women who are administering those tests do a maximum number at each site a day. And I'm wondering, is that because of the availability of the testing? And can you talk about how or if that might be ramped up in numbers anytime soon? Yeah, we're hoping to, um, to continue to increase the testing effort. Um, <clears throat> you may be familiar that we're Besides those drive-through testing, we're also uh, implementing these mobile testing teams, the governor calls them strike teams, <clears throat> to go into the different um, nursing homes and assisted living facilities that are at risk of having some type of uh, COVID uh, outbreak inside the home. So um, we've uh, ramped up these mobile testing teams throughout the state. We're gonna try to increase them to, uh, to really as much as the lab capacity is is um, capable of producing. So um, I know uh, Jared Moskowitz uh, and uh, Dr. Ripkes from the Department of Health are working extremely hard to continue to increase that capacity of the labs to be able to not be the limiting factor for um, how many people we can get through the testing. But as you can imagine, the uh, throughput on the labs is limited by this incredible demand throughout the nation. I mean, we literally go all over the nation to find laboratories that might be able to um, accept our samples. We do business in Virginia, we've done it in Pennsylvania. We're looking at opening up a contract in California, maybe Texas this week, uh, just to continue to seek every possible avenue to be able to increase yeah. that lab capacity. Yeah, General Leifert, we know that your men and women of the Guard have collected more than 54,000 samples from Floridians over the last couple of weeks. Uh, how long does it take to get the uh, the test results back? It's a great question. We've seen a wide variety. Um, in fact, uh, I have um, 18 soldiers and airmen right now that are also COVID positive, um, either because of their, their civilian occupation or, or uh, six of them have actually become COVID positive in the course of, uh, of this um, current uh, effort. And so I've talked to every single one of them and some of them have told me, yeah, they, they found out um, you know, a week or two weeks after they took the test that's been some of the problems early on. Um, most recently, we haven't seen anything near that. They're trying to work through a, a, about a 24-hour turnaround on these things. But because we're working with so many different um, sources of the laboratories, as I mentioned, going really all over the country to find lab capacity, sometimes that does increase the length of time that it takes to get them back. But one of the big efforts Dr. Rivkes is trying to work through is increasing the capacity of our state Department of Health laboratories to be able to keep this in state and hopefully make that turnaround time more like uh, in the 24 to 48 hour time frame. Mm -hmm. So it really, to answer your question, it's been a, a wide variety over the course of the last six weeks 
and they're continuing to narrow it down to make it faster and faster and get that, uh, that uh, capacity and turnaround time as quick as it can be. General, I want to go back to what you were talking about, the nursing homes, long-term care, the ALFs. We've known since Seattle a month and a half ago that that is really the vulnerable population. Uh, last night, as a matter of fact, the state just released a list in Florida of more than 300 facilities with more than 1,600 positive cases. You mentioned the mobile testing you'll be doing now at those facilities. Is there any thought, any plan to test every single resident in Florida that lives in one of those ALF or nursing home facilities? Yeah, great question. I know the governor would love to have that happen because he has been laser focused on the on the uh, the challenges that that this pandemic creates for those facilities and those very high at risk populations that live there. So um, if we could do it, we would do it. At this point, the criteria that we're looking at when we go into these mobile testing uh, teams into these facilities is to test the staff. First of all, we'd like to test 100% of the staff. And then we'd like to test every person with a, um, a symptom of the COVID virus uh, that, that might be patients. Because of the limitations on the number of kits that we have and the processing capacity, we have to focus them right now on the, on the highest risk categories of people. And obviously, since the, the, um, the lockdown of the facilities, the patients aren't getting out. So if they're bringing COVID into the facility, it has to be through the staff. So we're trying to focus on getting 100% of the staffs um, tested. Once we make sure that they're not bringing that um, virus into the facility, then we think we're going to have our best opportunity to, um, to close our arms around those facilities and make sure that nothing else can be introduced. Yeah. Uh, General Leifert, very briefly, how long do you expect your men and women, your guardsmen and women, to be out there at these mobile testing sites? Uh, for as long as we're needed. Really, um, the governor's made it clear that uh, we'll be there until the citizens no longer require us to be there. So we're hunkering down for the long haul, trying to make sure that we give uh, um, you know, the appropriate rest to the people that are out there on those sites. It's pretty hot, um, tiring work. It's only going to get hotter as the summer goes on. Um, and so it really, the virus will determine really how long we need to continue doing this, and uh, we'll be there as long as it takes. General, thanks so much. We appreciate you and everything that the guardsmen and women are doing. Thank you so much for your time this morning, and uh, please do stay in touch with us. Thanks, My General. Pleasure. Thank you. All right, up next, we're going to check in with uh, Congresswoman Debbie Mukersell Powell of Miami. We have a chance now to speak with one of our members of Congress from South Florida. Representative Debbie Mukersell Powell is a Democrat from South Miami-Dade, and there she is. The Congresswoman has been involved in federal relief planning in many respects, and as you see, she joins us right now via Skype from Miami. Good morning, Congresswoman. Good to have you on with us this morning. Good morning, Glenn and Michael. I hope you're healthy and doing well. We'll, uh, we'll talk all about relief efforts both underway and what's to come. But first, the President of the United States has launched a phased three-point plan to reopen the economy. So many people want to itch to get back to work, uh, rebooting the economy. And then there are all the health experts who are really trying to tamp down expectations that that can possibly be soon until there's a lot more testing and possibly a treatment. I'd love for you to weigh in on, on that, your thoughts on that. Well, Glenna, look, one thing that I learned when I worked at the College of Health and then at the College of Medicine at FIU is that 
We have some of the most equipped, experienced public health experts here locally and nationally that have been studying epidemiology for decades now. And what they are telling us that is that we cannot prematurely open the economy if we're not prepared. We need to expand testing. Everyone is talking about that. We need to make sure that our healthcare workforce has all the equipment in place that they need. If we see a resurgence in cases, we need to make sure that the infection rate is not more than one. Right now, the infection rate is three to four people. So if you have uh, COVID-19, you can pass it on to three or four people. We need to reduce the rate of infection. Um, so we're not there yet. And there is definitely a high risk involved if we were to prematurely open the economy at this point. Yeah, uh, Congresswoman, we know that the, the president said Thursday that reopening the country, reopening the states and cities was really a decision for the governors and that he would support them. And then the next day he sent out all these tweets supporting protesters who want yeah. the, the reopening to happen soon. Sent out a tweet saying, liberate Minnesota, liberate Wisconsin, liberate Virginia. Are we getting mixed messages here from the president? Is this just political? Michael, it's so dangerous to have the president of the United States actually encourage citizens of these different states to go against the, the laws and uh, the government in their states and the orders that they have provided, both Republicans and also Democratic governors who have been very clear that people need to stay at home. Look, staying at home has worked. We, we have seen the positive impact of so many Floridians who have made that sacrifice of closing down their businesses, but really following that public health order and advice that if you stay at home, we can really control the spread of this virus. This virus is deadly. We don't have a vaccine at this point. We don't have therapeutics at this point. Uh, scientists across the nation are very busy conducting clinical trials. Um, I am hopeful that maybe we can find therapy sooner rather than later. But at this point, to have the president of the United States make this uh, a political ploy and advise citizens to go against the law and the orders of their governors is extremely dangerous. We need to protect American lives. Uh, the safety and the health of our communities is the most important thing that we can do as leaders. And we are not going to be open to business and reopen the economy if we continue to see so many people losing their lives. And Miami-Dade County, if, if you recall, we are the epicenter of COVID-19 in the state of Florida. We're over 9,000 cases. Um, we have seen close to 200 deaths. And so uh, my advice to my community, and I am very proud of my community because they have been very responsible, is to stay at home and uh, wait until we see that peak and, and slowly have a plan in place based on science and data so that we can get back to normal. That science and data coming a lot from testing. Congresswoman, I don't know if you were able to hear the prior interview with General Eifert of the National Guard on the program, but he said something really interesting. He was talking about what they want to do with testing and ramping up and the numbers of tests, but he said that it's the results and the lab capacity that's really the issue, not locally, but around the country. What, speak to lab capacity around the country and what is what Congress is doing, if, if anything, to find more and ramp up that aspect of it. So one of the things that we have been discussing and to increase funding for more testing, if you remember, the first package that we passed early March included over $100 billion for research, development, and testing. And I think we're going to need to add to that fund. Uh, one of the problems that I've seen is that there has not been really a national coordinated effort to make sure that we have all the reagents 
that we need for additional testing. I keep hearing Dr. Burke saying that we have Abbott Laboratories all over the country ready to test, but that they don't have the equipment. I, I don't quite understand what the holdup is there. I can tell you that um, we've seen other countries testing at a much higher rate. At this point, we're testing about 150,000 Americans per day. We need to ramp that up to 500 to 700,000 is what we've been hearing from some of the health um, experts. So we are thinking of passing. There's a bill right now in the Senate that the Senate Democrats introduced that would include an additional $50 billion for testing. And that's something that I would support and that we're working through right now. Uh, Congresswoman, your district includes the incredibly rich farmlands in South Miami-Dade where produce for much of the nation is grown. And these farmers and the people who work for them are in serious financial trouble because the markets to buy those restaurants, hotels, they are all closed. And some of the farmers are even plowing crops under that are just, you know, coming uh, or ripening. Uh, but this week, late this week, you announced a huge federal grant to go to those farmers and the ag workers down there. How is how's that going to work? Yeah, so um, I was very happy to see that the USDA heeded my advice. I sent a letter to the secretary in March asking them to provide funding so that um, the USDA can purchase local produce so that we can provide that local produce to our local food banks. And um, there's $3 billion that have already been approved that was announced, as you said, on Thursday. So I am now asking them to expedite that. And I have been in communication with the Agriculture Commissioner, Nikki Freed, who's been working hand in hand with me on this issue. She's been wonderful. And we are also linking local food banks, local nonprofits that are feeding those that have food insecurity with our local farmers. So it's not gonna um, really make them whole. They really have been hurting through this pandemic. And I think we're gonna need to add an additional uh, funding line item to help our local farmers. But you know, um, it is shameful. And, and one of the things that this pandemic has done is really lift that veil of how produce um, and food is manufactured and distributed in this country. We continue to see imports coming from Mexico and we have our local farmers that have that produce available and, and it's not being purchased. So I hope that this will give us an opportunity to really support our local farmers, not just here in Florida, but all over the country. We have seen um, all those images of the milk that has been dumped right. because there's nowhere for them to sell and there are people going hungry. So we, we can do better than this. And we, in fact, will be talking to someone from Feeding South Florida later in this program, Congresswoman Debbie Mukersal-Powell. So good to see you and thank you for your time Thanks. today. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so to come, we are next going to hear from a state lawmaker from Broward, Representative Chevron Jones. He is very concerned about the high death rate among African-Americans who get COVID-19. Welcome back. As we have been talking about today, planning is underway on how to open up America after the coronavirus pandemic is over or under control. And that's under discussion from the White House to Tallahassee to right here in South Florida. And those decisions are going to be made by the president, governors, mayors, local business and civic leaders. It's going to be a complicated process. Parker Branton is live in Aventura with more now on the plans locally to get back to business. Parker. 
And Michael, in the Miami-Dade County Mayor is talking about forming task force for this reopening process. One of them includes for open spaces like beach and parks. Another would be for hotels, hospitality, restaurants, retail, those kind of things. This all comes as the Florida governor says he's ready to get people back to work and get this economy back up and running. Miami-Dade County looking ahead to reopening for business. We need to start thinking about how we're going to open up and do it in a way that limits the spread of the virus. Mayor Carlos Jimenez says he's working on a new normal, creating task forces to restart our local hospitality, retail, and restaurant industries. He says a task force for open spaces has already been created and that places like parks and beaches will be some of the first places to reopen. But when that does happen, will it look like this? On Friday, hundreds flocked to the beach in Jacksonville after the mayor there allowed it to reopen for limited hours. The Miami-Dade mayor says he saw the scenes of maskless beachgoers defying social distancing guidelines, but says he believes open spaces in Miami-Dade will be opened safely. When we reopen our public spaces, will be done in a, in a very uh, safe manner. Um, and yes, uh, I saw the images, but I think we need to move forward. So good news for a lot of folks out there. The beaches and parks could be the first to open back up, according to the Miami-Dade County Mayor. And we do expect to hear more on his plans on Monday. We are live in Aventura. I'm Parker Branton. Michael and Glenna, back to you. Parker, thanks so much. All right, reopening Florida safely, kickstarting the economy, getting all those unemployment benefits out to roughly 850,000 Floridians who lost their jobs. That is all on schedule for all the state lawmakers. And on one day this week, State Representative Chevron Jones of West Park conducted a virtual forum with Joe Biden, <laughs> as well on the same day as a virtual town hall with Florida Senator Marco Rubio. What a day for Representative Jones with us via Skype. Good morning, great to see you. Good to see you also. Good to see you, Glenn and Mike. So that town hall with uh, Marco Rubio and uh, Senator Oscar Brainin earlier this week, the senator said, the U.S. Senator Rubio said a really interesting thing, asked an interesting question. Representative Jones, how much are we willing to risk to open up the economy? I'm wondering what you think is appropriate as an answer to that question. Well, you know what, Glenna, I think we have a responsibility to the public health of Floridians in our in our communities, and we should not move until the medical experts give us the green light that is safe for us to open back up no, and no time sooner. And just uh, yesterday, we had 733 new cases in Florida, and so I agree that we should be putting a task force of some sort uh, together, but it should include stakeholders in different segments of the community who can help us make um, the right decision. And uh, the president exciting and heightening of confusion across the country does not help the situation and it compromises the health and safety of Americans. It's irresponsible and it's not what our leaders should be doing. Yeah, uh, Chev, good morning, it's Michael. Uh, you know, you clearly are aware, have commented on the fact that African-Americans in this country and in our community are contracting COVID-19 and dying from it at a significantly higher rate than white people. So what does this tell you and what can be done about it? 
Uh, thank you so much, Michael. I think that's an amazing question that we have been uh, dealing with, not just myself, but even members of the Black, the Black Caucus, the Legislative Black Caucus in Florida. In communities of color, COVID-19, uh, as we know, is, is extra lethal because it is a pandemic jumping on top of multiple pre-existing epidemics. Uh, black and brown communities, we already have a disproportionate share of high blood pressure, asthma, diabetes, and obesity. And each of these factors, especially high blood pressure, makes it easy for the virus to, to, kill, to kill you. And, that, and that's just period. Uh, and that's why people in their 50s, 40s, 30s are dying from this virus in the black community. Uh, and second, I would like to say that we have a, a epidemic of poverty and low-wage jobs within in our communities. Nearly every person that I see working in a grocery store or dropping off these packages, uh, many of them are people of, uh, uh, people of color who we now call essential workers. Uh, and so, I mean, by all means, you know, we know the essential danger that currently exists right now, especially within the African-American community, which shines a light on a bigger issue, which is healthcare access. So what can we do? Um, even after COVID-19 is done, we need to make sure we're moving into a, a place to where we're making healthcare affordable and accessible uh, for Americans, period, more specifically individuals uh, in the black and brown community. And on that note, that's after. Let, let's talk about currently, we are hearing literally every day from people on those front lines who are now essential, transportation workers, healthcare mm -hmm. workers, who are telling us they do not have the kind of physical protection they feel is necessary to keep them safe right now. I'm gonna guess you've heard from them too. Uh, speak, if you would, uh, Representative Jones, about that and about testing, widespread testing in the communities that really should be tested on a much larger scale, who frankly are not. You know what, Glenna, I spoke with Director Moskowitz yesterday, and I just texted him this morning, and I will, I will say that the ask that has been put out to put more testing sites within the black community uh, has, it, is happening. Um, just yesterday or, or Friday, uh, the governor uh, went to the Urban League in Pompano, I think, uh, there to, to place a site there. There's another site uh, that you all just uh, reported on uh, at Mitchmore Park. Uh, and so they, they hear the concerns. And even Dr. Director Moskowitz um, called me yesterday because he wants to work along with the HBC use to put to figure out how they can play a role in helping this that goes from florida a m all the way down to florida memorial university that's here in miami gardens and so i think they have heard the call out uh, for us to put more testing sites in the locations where uh where black where blacks and brown people reside and i think we're moving in a direction now to where we can ensure that as we prepare to have this conversation about opening up the economy that people have access to uh to testing and we can get the true data that we need. And what about the, the issue of PPEs? I mean, this, mm -hmm. this week there was a lawsuit filed by Miami-Dade bus drivers against Miami-Dade Transit for not being protected enough. It is a lawsuit, is it, it's an allegation, but certainly the yeah. fear is there. Yeah, well, let, let's be clear. The government, we should be rushing mass tests, ventilators to these hot spots, um, flooding um, the commun uh, communities with PPEs. Uh, I know that uh, uh, Secretary Mos I mean, Director Moskowitz, uh, made it clear that they are moving these things into uh, into these communities, and, and let's not forget, and to where our these community health centers uh, reside. We have one right here uh, in in West Park, uh, that, which is a community center who is in need of PPE. 
PPEs. And we, the government has a responsibility to ensure that these frontline workers, these essential workers, these nurses inside our in, in, inside of these facilities, that they have the necessary precautions um, um, to, to make sure that they are safe and they can go back home to their family safe. And so rightfully so, uh, that individuals are concerned in the government, we have a responsibility to rush those materials to those individuals. Yeah. Representative Chevron Jones, always good to speak with you and congratulations on that bipartisan virtual town meeting. I think it's great that you and Senator Rubio are Republican and Senator Brayman, uh, a Democrat, that you all got together to talk about something that really is nonpartisan. Michael, I'll, I'll say this, that um, party politics at that time will come. Right now, it's about the safety of people and until we get to a place to where every Floridian and every American is safe, we can talk about part Democrat and Republican issues at a later date. But right now, it's time for all of us to get together and have the real conversation of how do we ensure that every American is safe, period. That could be a great part of our new normal. Let's put that on the list. <laughs> and let's put that on the list. <laughs> Thank you, Chef. Great to see you. Thank Thanks you so again. Much. You too. Up next, we talk to one of the leaders in the effort to distribute free food to people in need. We are going to speak to Paco Velez, who is president and CEO of Feeding South Florida. In communities all over South Florida this week, cars lined up for miles and people waited for hours to get boxes and bags of free food. And a leader in those efforts to feed South Florida is Feeding South Florida, a veteran nonprofit that is distributing food to the hungry long before coronavirus. Paco Velez is the president, CEO of Feeding South Florida. Paco, good morning. Great to see you and thank you for the work that you and your staff and your volunteers are doing. Good morning, thanks for having us. Uh, Paco, let me ask you something. I have been really moved on a number of occasions by watching our reports uh, as people go through the lines and people in those lines, many of them have said to our reporters, other reporters, I have never asked for free food in my life. I just so desperate, I've got to be here. When you hear that, what, what do you think? Um, it's, it's truly heartbreaking uh, to see the families, the, the children, the seniors come through the line. And yes, you're absolutely correct. Many of those are asking for assistance for the very first time in their lives. And, and there's, a, there's truly a sense of desperation um, and, and of fear. Uh, our families are, are fearful of, of the unknown, the unknown of, of when they're going to get their next meal, of when is it going to be over, or if they're even going to get another job. So, so the, the, hopefully we can do our part to make sure that they have food on their table. Paco, you said something this week uh, during some news reports that as we watch exactly what your organization is doing, video of lines of people showing up to get what they need, you said something, uh, and I don't want to direct quote you, but it was something along the lines of depending on how long the pandemic drags on, you said, we will run out of food. I, I can't think of more unsettling words to so many people in our community now. Kind of frame for us what that issue is for you and what can be done about that. So the, we're, we're fortunate. A lot of people see South Florida from Palm Beach down to Miami as, as a destination spot and a paradise and, and a place for nightlife and, and uh, entertainment. A lot of people don't see the, 
the other side, the agricultural side. We have a huge agricultural industry from Palm Beach, Broward, and Miami-Dade. And, and Feeding South Florida rescues millions upon millions of pounds of food every single year from, from these generous growers across the three-county area. The unfortunate piece is, is that our growers are going to head up north to get to the cooler weather, and we're going to lose out on, on all of that produce that's, that's currently coming in from our, from our growers. Uh, the second piece of that is our supply chain and the food system has, has, has been impacted, not just locally or across the country, but across the globe. Everybody's trying to access food so they can fill their, their retail markets. Um, if you go to any retail store, you'll see bare shelves. I'm sure you guys have reported on that uh, many times. And, uh, and you have all these retail stores, as well as 200 food banks across the country, as well as all these different organizations around the world trying to access the same food. There is a two, uh, three to five week lead time on all the product that we're trying to purchase from manufacturers. And, and um, as we're waiting for that food, we're, there's, a, there's a possibility that uh, because of the immense need that we will run out. Yeah. Uh, Paco, w earlier, maybe you heard the interview with uh, Congresswoman Debbie Mooker Powell. She talked about how she had been instrumental in getting the USDA to fund $3 billion so that those big produce growers uh, in South Florida and elsewhere in the country, you know, get some money for their crops, which otherwise they were going to have to give away. How about money for feeding South Florida? Are you getting any federal or state or local grant money? So we've received uh, our, our typical TFAP commodity program, which is the Emergency Food Assistance Program through the United States Department of Agriculture and down through the Florida Department of Agriculture. It's a pass-through grant. Um, and that helps us for, for a period um, in Palm Beach County and Broward County. Uh, we've also uh, received uh, some money to work with growers from Miami-Dade County. But the reality is, if we're going to get, if we're gonna get through this, we're going to we're requesting the support of our entire community, those that, that are fortunate enough to still have employment and still have uh, revenue coming in or a paycheck coming in, that if they can help, that would be amazing for us. We're gonna have to rely on our private community and our private donations in order to get through this together. Yeah, Paco, if I could, here's an opportunity to pitch the public. All of our viewers through This Week in South Florida are generous people, very engaged in their community, and I suspect some of them would like to support you. How do they get in touch with you? How would they make a contribution? All of South Florida has been extremely generous, uh, whether it's after a hurricane or after the government or during the government shutdown. South Florida has always come out to volunteer to support us financially and to, and to provide food. The best way for, for families and, and organizations to get involved is to go to feedingsouthflorida.org, click the donate now button. We're limited on the, the amount of volunteers that we can bring in, so we have to rely on, on our staff and, and our increased staff. We've, we've hired additional staff. We've rented additional trucks in order to try to meet the demand. And in order for us to get food in, we need those funds in order to, 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 to put fuel in our trucks, to, to get those uh, reefer units going, and, and to transport the product from where it is to where it needs to go onto the tables of families. Paco, I, I want to ask you what, what may be a, a bit of a difficult question. I was one of those reporters out there watching people wait online for food and the compassionate and gen generous acts of all of these, yours and the organizations that are doing this. And what goes into a trunk is a box of some fresh food and maybe milk, orange juice, uh, maybe some meat. And I can't imagine that that box would last more than a day or two for a family. You are a frontliner. Talk about that, if you would. 
so we get the question all the time. It must be truly rewarding to, to do what you do. And the reality is um, the smiles on people's faces as soon as they get a box of food last about two and a half seconds. Um, our families are truly struggling and, and they'll have to be back to another distribution or that same distribution the following week in order to continue to, to, to feed their families. One of the things I've shared with folks is those that still have paychecks can go to a grocery store and if there's no food on the shelves at the grocery store, they can go to a different grocery store or wait a couple of days uh, till the grocery store replenishes their, their uh, inventory. If Feeding South Florida runs out of food, our families just don't eat and that's a reality because they have no, no, no income coming in. Um, our families are, they do get a generous amount of food. We do get a lot of great produce from our, from our growers and we do put in enough food, cereals and, 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 and meats in their box to last them about a week um, and hopefully until the next distribution. Paco Velez from Feeding South Florida, we are so appreciative of the work that you, your staff and your volunteers do. Keep it up. Thank you. And up next, we talk to the officer from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers who turned the Miami Beach Convention Center into a temporary field hospital. Stay tuned. Across the country right now, the Army Corps of Engineers is converting some unconventional spaces into temporary field hospitals to meet what could be a surge in demand. And one of those conversions is the massive Miami Beach Convention Center. Lieutenant Colonel Todd Polk is the senior project manager for the Corps', Corps local COVID-19 response projects. And he joins us now from Miami Beach. Colonel, good afternoon. Great to see you. Thanks for being with us. Good afternoon, sir, and it's a pleasure to be here and talk with you and your viewers today. Great. So bring us up to speed. How is this kind of unbelievable project of turning the, the huge Miami Beach Convention Center into a 450-bed hospital? So it's been an enormous effort. Uh, we received this mission back about the middle of March or was told we were told uh, to go ahead and begin uh, assessing some facilities down here in the Miami area about the, the first week of April. Uh, or just just before April uh, kicked off, we were handed this mission to, to get started. Uh, about a should promised about two weeks, and and uh, happy to report that we were received the facility last night as far as completed. About uh, about one o'clock, we're going to hand this. We will sign this over to the state so they can uh, begin operations and planning to uh, unfortunately uh, receive patients as as required. And I think the best thing is that we're able to at least help your so IFP to provide that flexibility to the hospitals uh, as we as they are our providers and everyone tries to uh, treat these COVID-19 patients. Lieutenant Colonel, it, it's so surreal to be looking at this video of where things like Art Basel has been and now look at it with big white <coughs> curtains and beds for a field hospital. I know you and your crew were told to meet a deadline which was to be the peak COVID-19 day as far as the projections that we've been watching goes. And then that was supposed to happen in, in, in this week originally. But now those projections have scaled back and, and if you believe them, we're past the peak. Does that alter your work at all? Are you breathing any sort of sigh of relief at all? Really, man, for our construction side, we are just happy to have this completed and, and like be able to hand this off uh, to the state and let the state and National Guard be prepared to utilize this, this facility as they see fit. Of course, acknowledging everything from a possible second way. So um, the, the side of relief for us is that we were able to get everything done to the best of our ability on such a short timeline. I think we're going to be able to meet the state's needs and requirements 
Um, but but as far as this high relief, ma'am, you know, our hearts go out to everyone that's been infected in, in the loss of life from this virus. And we just want to continue to do our part from the Corps of Engineers side and the federal response. And I everyone know that we are with them and we're part of this community and we've done everything we I think we really can. Um, as well as all the support from uh, all of all of the community and contractors who, who've done the phenomenal uh, phenomenal work to make it happen in such a short time, um, we're excited. Like I said, as you said, 450 uh, bays or beds. I mean, 50 of these would be uh, we consider isolation pods for uh, um, uh, some of for the patients COVID-19 need patients. The yeah. actual patients <clears throat> will go in those isolation pods. It sounds like because some of the field hospitals actually are from are are dedicated toward people coming from hospitals who might have been able to be discharged with other ailments to make room in the hospitals. But it sounds like this particular field hospital actually has what you're calling isolation pods for COVID-19 patients themselves. We do, man. And our planning, as our, our understanding for our initial planning guidance was for this to be an entirely COVID um, facility. So it would be all considered a hot zone. Uh, so 400, like you said, that may be ambulatory, that may be recovering. Uh, as I said, 50 pods or uh, 50 bays that themselves, we could, they're about a 15 by 15 uh, space where we could put two actually hook up two uh, patients to a ventilator if necessary. So really, I think the, the key is here we're providing the flexibility to the state and all of our medical providers to make those decisions and have know that they have this on hand that, that we can utilize. And, and uh, as back to the the peak, it, it's allowing us to hand this back off, like I said, to the to the National Guard and their team to prepare and get operations set. So in the event that they do need this facility. Our, our, our opinion has been it's much better to have this on hand on hand and, and, and not need it than, than to yeah. really need this down the road and, and not have anything to turn back to. Oh, absolutely. We would rather have it available in the event that there is a huge surge in demand for hospital beds. Uh, Colonel, very briefly explain to us, uh, there was a contract let for about $22 million to do this work. Did the Army Corps of Engineers really draw the plans up and then you work with the contractor to accomplish the conversion? That's correct, sir. So we did a, it was called design build. And uh, in this instance, even somewhat of an undefinitized pro, uh, uh, contract where we kind of built it, built the airplane as we were in flight. So yes, our team in Jacksonville from our engineering design team, we had, I mean, began with the initial design, gave us the contractor, hey, here's what we're looking at. And conceptually, uh, they took it, ran with it. And then daily, uh, actually at the early early phases, a few in the first couple of days of construction, we were talking about four times a day uh, as we're doing modifications and, and, and adjusting how the plans, how the plans would shake out. I mean, some of the biggest things of note, I mean, ensuring that we were told off the bat oxygen. So we've got over five miles, 1,250,000 gallon oxygen tank out here to well, make sure that we a, have oxygen yeah. flowing to every, every space. Yeah, it's a it's a very complex operation. Thank you, the Corps of Engineers, Colonel Polk, thank you for the work you and your men have done. We really appreciate it. And women. And women. It is good yes, to have the cavalry here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. the entire team. Yes, sir. Yes, Thanks again. All right. Stay with us. We'll be right back. We want to thank you for spending this hour with us, all of us here at Local 10. As you see, like you, we are altering our processes, but not the 100% commitment to being a guiding force as we weather this coronavirus crisis 
together. We are online 24-7 at local10.com, so please do stay in touch. And before we leave you today, we want to acknowledge a couple of significant deaths in our community. Former Miami-Dade Commissioner Doran Roll has died. We mourn that passing. Also want to note the passing of Joe Adler, cultural icon in South Florida. For the last 20 years, Joe was the producing artistic director at Gable Stage, an amazing theater director, won many Carbonell Awards. Glenna and I both knew him well. We loved him. He was a great human being. We'll miss him. Joe said he liked it when I said, stay informed, get involved. We hope you are.